Welcome to episode 17 of the Honeycomb Podcast. And it's Saturday. It's gorgeous outside, sitting in the studio. And today, I have a very, very special guest and uh, really excited to get this episode up and going. Um, This podcast is available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. So today, I am joined in the studio by Dallin Cooper. He is a speaker, a consultant of ethics and leadership. He founded a digital marketing agency, a pet food company, and has lived as a shepherd. He lives with his wife and two sons in Wyoming right here, but is often found on LinkedIn or DallinCooper.com. Dallin, thanks for coming in the studio. Thanks for having me. We're here today to celebrate something very big, and that is that your book that we're about to talk about for the next 45 to an hour is now available everywhere. Yeah, I mean, maybe not absolutely everywhere, but all the places people normally buy books. Amazon.com. The title of the book is Get on the Bull, Developing Attitudes and Behaviors for Successful Leadership. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself for our audience that uh, may not know you. So you read that nice little profile saying things I've done. I've started two companies. I've had a blast with both of them. I do keynote speeches on ethics and trust and leadership. And this is my first book actually getting published, which is kind of crazy. Like I, I always said, man... I think a lot of people say, yeah, someday I should write a book. I, I should just do it. And I finally actually did it, which is, is it. it's exciting. Uh, gonna gonna happen. I've heard that same thing. Or like maybe even thought that myself. I'm like, one day I should write a book about this. But it takes a lot to write a book, as you probably know now, well, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a lot like running a podcast. A lot of people are like, I should start a podcast. And then the more you learn about it, the more you're like, oh, but doing it well takes a lot of work and yes. a lot of people and a lot of money and it's a it's a process but i i really enjoyed it i am honestly already working on my next book and i love this one but i think the next one's going to be way better because that's how progress works and i'm just excited to see how people respond to it yeah so public speaking is that kind of what made you think that this is the type of book that you'd like to write or what really inspired you to say yes, it's my first book, but here's the content I want to cover. Like, how did it come about? So this book was actually born out of one of my keynote topics, which is fittingly called Get on the Bull. And I wanted to have a leadership topic because, you know, leadership's a big industry. A lot of people want leadership speakers. So there's that practical aspect that those are gigs that I wanted to have as as a speaker. And you can tie into a lot of related topics with leadership. One of my big passions and and the next book and many of my speeches are about ethics. But a lot of people don't get super amped about ethics, right? Like <laughs> when you tell someone like, yeah, I give presentations on ethics. They're like, ooh, <laughs> ethics. Yeah. So leadership is one of those ways where you can teach some of those same principles, talk about the exciting stuff, but without people going in thinking, oh, I'm going to learn how to be a better person. They they end up thinking, okay, I'm going to be a more effective leader. But those are the same thing in the end, most of the time. So it started out like that, and I had a topic. I had a speech that was about leadership, and it was just really flat, pretty boring, not that great, and not something that I felt excited to put as like part of my repertoire, something that people could book and, and hire me to do. And I had this idea to just pretty much scrap the whole thing and redo it as a giant metaphor for bull riding. Because my dad was a bull rider, and 
you know, growing up, I I was that little kid that's like, oh yeah, I'm so tough. I'm gonna be a bull rider, and I you know I tie a like a rope around my dad's back when I was really small and like sit on his back and have him try and buck me off, you know, all that kind of stuff. Until I got older and I watched a lot of bull riding and I I saw them like breaking every bone and getting taken out in ambulances and I thought, you know, public speaking, it's pretty cool. That might be the route. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tough, manly. Super, super cool. And it all just kind of came together. My dad had always taught us growing up as kids using those stories, right? Kind of think like the Bible has its parables where they use the story to teach a lesson or like Aesop's fables. My dad would use his bull riding stories to teach us stuff. So the framework was already there and that's how I had learned a lot of these principles. And I just needed to collect some more stories, do some more interviews, and and put it together in a framework. The speech came together pretty quickly, and I honestly think it's a super fun speech. And uh, especially people who aren't familiar with like cowboy culture or bull riding or the West as a whole, it feels kind of fun and, and different because you've got a lot of presentations where it's like, oh, you know, let's talk about football and the quarterback. And like quarterbacks are used so often in leadership analogies and it's like you know what people aren't talking about bull riding yes like, it, it just gives something a little bit fresh a little bit interesting that makes people be like what like where where is this coming from and so once i had the speech i thought okay i've got the framework and and i was excited about it i was interviewing people for the presentation i thought well while i'm interviewing them may as well get more information and 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 keep going and make this thing a book so it's not the longest book in the world. It's not the most thorough book in the world, but it's I, I feel like it's fun and I feel like it's memorable. And with a lot of leadership stuff, that's that's what you end up lacking is something that sticks in your mind and helps you remember the stuff in your day-to-day life. And I feel like stories do that really effectively. Yeah, one thing on that topic is that it reminded me of seminars or trainings or things that I've gone to in the past, and you know this as a public speaker, you're in that industry, that during these presentations, whatever happens during the couple days that you're there, you get super amped, right? Like you're so into it and you're so in the moment. It's like church camp. Like you have this overwhelming feeling of the Lord and like you're just in this beautiful place in the wilderness. And so during that time, of course, you're like, this will be with me forever. I won't there won't be a time where I think back on this and not be able to remember anything from it. And like other than a few nice hymns and like some things that happened, I honestly can't look back and say, yeah, that I totally remember that. What so what did you take from it? Because having something that's fun and interesting whether it be a leadership course or anything like that, you're there to kind of take everything in as a sponge, but it can get really, really boring. And to me, to keep my attention, it it really takes something that like I can totally relate to or something I know that while you're while this is going on, I'm gonna actually do something with that. Like it's not just something that's gonna fade off. It's like a New Year's resolution, right? Like yeah. you, you like you have this this idea that you're gonna do all these things. But and you're way excited about it. You the, the euphoria, is, and then it's gone. After reading the book, I love the fact that like I'm I'm already and you know it's fresh to me. I I, I got to say I've read it in like the last week or whatever. Whenever you sent it to me, I read it once and then I've I peeled over it again. But it reminds me of something like telling a story the way that you do 
it makes it so much easier to kind of just remember the overall ideas. Because you remember stories, fables, all these things like growing up, reading books, you take that with you. So that's what I think is really interesting about it. Yeah, and that's literally the entire point, right? I know that I'm not reinventing leadership. I'm not the first person to say, hey, maybe a good leader should be humble. Or maybe a good leader should be honest. Like these aren't wild and new ideas. These these are very standard, time-tested leadership principles that we know work. But that doesn't mean that we're good at them. And not just in like business leadership, but in life. I think we all, and I say this in the book, I think we can all say, yeah, lying isn't great. <laughs> yes, we could definitely say that. Lying, yes, is not yeah. not good. So, so again, I mentioned this. <laughs> most people agree that lying isn't good. The average American still lies 11 times a week. Mm. So there's a big difference between knowing that a principle is important, knowing that a principle exists and is useful, and then making it not just something you do, but something that's so ingrained into your life that it's a habit. I think back to when I first read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, and every chapter you're like, oh my goodness, the whole world makes so much more sense. Like, duh, why have I not been doing this? It's so clear, it's so obvious. And same thing, you get so hyped. You're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this change. But if you try to make all of the changes at once, you end up just not making any changes. It's too overwhelming. We, we can't do that. And so I advocate really strongly, both in presentations and in my books, to set achievable and, and specific goals. I make a big focus on implementation intentions, which are a psychology principle of if-then statements that get you to actually accomplish something. And you can use implementation intentions for everything, but instead of it just being like, okay, I'm going to do this, an implementation intention is like, anytime I see the stairs, I'm going to take the stairs, right? So you have this if trigger that when your mind sees something, you you then think, oh yeah, I, I have to set the goal. Because most of the time people don't fail at goals because they consciously choose to. It's because they get busy and they forget. It's not that they think like, ah, oh, I, I hate exercising. It's that I'm too busy and I forgot to go to the gym and then I forgot again and then I forgot again and then I forgot again. And so instead it has to be made part of a routine, part of a habit until that habit becomes a part of your character, something that you just naturally do. Especially when you're talking soft skills like honesty. Saying, okay, I'm always going to be honest. You have to set triggers for yourself for, okay, when do I find myself lying? Or, or misdirecting, stretching the truth a little, because a lot of lies aren't straight-up lies. They're like 20% lies. <laughs> Just yeah. enough to be deceptive. Like, like yeah, look, the white lie. Yeah. Right? Like a little white lie. And I, it, it, it's a, a different presentation, but I don't believe in little white lies. I, I actually think the lies are just lies and as a parent i know that you get that it's like but little white lies are important <laughs> like yeah. they're they're a fundamental fabric of our existence but i don't think that there are good lies and i'm pretty adamant on that i think there are a couple exceptions like you can take like gun to your head scenarios like oh someone's safety in life is at risk if you don't lie to this maniac with a machete. It's like, okay, that's that, a good example. Yeah. Right. Like that. Sure. Fine. There are exceptions, 
But most of the realistic exceptions people come up with, I don't agree with. I think if you're building a long-term relationship of trust where, where you actually care about the long-term with the person, even if it is your kid, even if they are four or five or whatever, lying to them will just make it worse. Yeah, I feel since I have a four-year-old, that I get around that by just being extremely to the point because <laughs> I know you won't understand all of this, but I'm going to say it as if I was telling you exactly what you will understand later on because maybe – so like what is this? Oh, well, that's a carbon piece of blah, 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 blah. I am telling you exactly what it is. Maybe you didn't get all that. I could simplify it for you. When you say like someone lies, what was it, 11 times the average, uh, yeah, 11 times a week? 11 times a week. That makes total sense because it's one of those things that when you examine yourself, right? Oh, you're your own worst critic. The habits that you develop now are going to change. These things are all actually true, right? But it's the hardest thing, the self-motivation to do that. I think for everybody, and you're right, because you get busy. Life comes at you very fast. A little thing like taking the stairs, as as an example. Mm -hmm. If you're trying to lose weight, that would be a great thing just to know. Like, oh, because you can remember it so easily. It's super, super simple. So real realistic expectations and not biting off more than you can chew, which is what everyone does, I feel like. Well, I'm going to do this thing, but uh, with losing weight, you can uh, have portion control. You can have, okay, I'm going to X out sugar. Okay, I'm going to do this. Okay, I'm going to work out, and then I'm going to do this. You're such a busy person that, for me anyway, personally, I'm like, God, you know, I just have to consciously remember a few things and not forget them. Like, I'm only going to eat half of this. Uh, the simple, simple things, because those small, small things make such a huge difference. And I feel like honesty comes with that. So is it okay to tell a lie? The question is, as you said, like there's no such thing as a white lie. So if you're not telling the truth, it's black and white, right? You are not telling the truth. I mean, what... There's not a lot of gray area there. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're getting into the ethics enthusiast here, so I'll try not to be like too super nerdy about it, but it depends on what you define as okay. I think there are a lot of lies you can tell and you aren't necessarily evil, right? Like you aren't necessarily a bad person, but if you're talking outcomes, lies damage relationships virtually always. There's There's a big distinction between not lying and complete and total unfiltered honesty and that's another thing i mean your example with your kid is really solid i there's a difference between lying and being age appropriate right if your kid is four or five and they ask where babies come from you don't need to say like all right here we go freshman high school whatever level like sex ed class like, you don't need to pull up some porn or whatever like there's there's age appropriateness. You don't yeah. need to like go super in depth here, but you also better not say the stork or the freaking cabbage patch. <laughs> like there's right. There's no good that comes from that. Right? Like the explain outcome. to yeah, the I level totally, that I they get, understand. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the case for almost everything. Even circumstances where the biggest reason that people lie is to spare someone's feelings. Right? You want to use the classic does this dress make me look fat thing? That's something that someone always brings up when you talk about lying. It's like, okay, Dallin, so what do you do if, if Katie, your wife, asks you if, if this dress makes her look fat? And I'm like, well, it depends on why she's asking, right? Is it because she just had a baby, which she did? Uh, we've, we've got a two-month-old. So if she's asking if it makes her look fat because she's insecure, she's still losing baby weight, 
and she wants to know if she feels pretty, then I'm going to answer the question that I feel like she's really asking, and I'm going to say, I think you look gorgeous, right? I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth, regardless of how flattering the outfit is, right? Because I'm addressing the real question. If she's asking because we are going to a fancy event, you know, we're meeting uh, with cool, fancy people. I, I don't know. Pick your favorite fancy person that you'd be really excited to meet and you want to make a good impression on. And we're going to, to some speaking engagement and there's going to be cool people there and she wants to, to look nice. And she asks me if she looks good in an outfit. That's a different question. And there have been times where I look at her outfit and I say like, those, like, those colors aren't really working on you or like th- those two pieces aren't going together. I, and I'll say, like, I don't really think that one's jiving. Uh, like, I'm not sure what it is because I'm not a fashion person. But you're being but, truthful and but, honest because you're looking at her and, and yeah. saying what you actually feel. So you love her unconditionally. Yeah. So your response would be normally, yes, I think you look beautiful. But guess what? I'm super biased because I'm madly in love with you and you're the wife and my yeah. partner. But and, um, and there's a big difference because <clears throat> and, and this has happened many times and. Obviously, it depends on your relationship that you have. I'm not saying that this should be handled the exact same way for everyone. But I know with our relationship, a lot of times what she's asking is, does this outfit look good? And and does it work on me? Yeah. Most of the time, the answer is yes. And regardless of the outfit, I think she's gorgeous. But sometimes I say, this one isn't great. I'd, I'd change that top or or whatever. Like, change that blouse. I, I think you've got better ones that would work with the rest of your outfit better. Sure. And she changes it. It looks great. And now she feels a lot better going into the event because the reason she asked is because she wasn't sure anyway. And if she went, she was going to feel insecure the whole time, right? She's like, I don't really know if it jives. If she asks me and regardless of what she asks, I just tell her it works. Like what if she goes to the event and then someone else is like, Katie, those two colors don't really go well together. I even like subconsciously felt that. Yeah. It's like, like, they saw her and they were like, Probably not the best choice of yeah, shoes like with that Katie, dress. what are you doing? Like, so now I have put her in a position where she's being publicly embarrassed or at least privately to herself embarrassed because she came to me, someone she trusted to get sincere feedback, and I wasn't willing to give it to her. Right. And I, again, the relationship is important and the precedent is important that like we have a relationship where you don't ask the question if you don't want an honest answer. Right. But what the real question is also matters. So I don't know. It, it comes yeah. down to communication and, and trust, right? Because if they ask you, if you get asked any question or you tell any falsehood and then someone finds out the truth from someone else later, or even from you later, you've lost trust, right? Trust has been right. degraded because it's like, I counted on you to be honest with me and you weren't. And there were consequences because of that. And I can't think of any circumstance where that isn't the case. The other controversial one is like Santa. You, like, do you tell your kid that Santa's real? Yeah. Right. What, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts well, on Santa, Devin? Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, I, I, I bring it back to like how I was raised, right? What was my favorite part about Christmas? Was it going to church with my family and when I knew that there was a bunch of presents to be opened and like, gluttonous toys that i would get or like what what was the best part about it my mom broke it down like even when santa's not real here's what the spirit of christmas is right which is real it's the spirit of giving it's the spirit of 
um, having this wonderful family time, celebrating the birth of Christ. You know, it's these things that are what make Christmas. So when my kid asked me if Santa's real, I'm like, you bet. He has a sleigh. Here's the reindeer. And then then it seems like I'm put in that same position as if like, what if I were told no? And then I would have been in school with the other kids. I always use that as the example. Like that's that's your peers when you're that age. Then would I be like the odd person out? How would that? So I've th- often thought about what the outcome would be. But as for me, I'm taking the easy route and just being like, Santa came, we leave cookies out for him, the reindeer are coming, Christmas, traditional. Yeah. And this is a hot take that a lot of people get mad at me for. I don't think that telling your kid is San- that Santa is real is bad. That's one of those lies where it's like, I don't think you're evil. I don't think you're even inherently wrong. But I don't agree with it. And this has been interesting. I've asked a few people this. The youngest child has stronger opinions on Santa. So like, as a youngest kid... I noticed this correlation. I went and started asking other people how they felt about Santa and then where they were in the birth order. So Mm -hmm. are you the youngest, oldest, middle, only? Second. So second oldest. Okay. So so you aren't the youngest. No. Which could contribute some. When you're the youngest, uh, across many youngest children I've seen, uh, if you're listening to this and you're a youngest child, I would be very curious to hear your response to this. Youngest children, when they find out about Santa, often feel betrayed. Because they've been doubting for a bit, right? Because you start questioning at a certain age. You're like, yeah, this doesn't really line up with like my basic reasoning. So you start questioning and everyone reassures you, right? Your siblings reassure you. Your parents reassure you. It's like, oh yeah, Santa's totally real. And when you finally figure out Santa isn't real, it's like everybody was lying to me. Mm. Everybody was, was in on the joke but me. And it was all this big joke of like how stupid, like how long can we string youngest kid along before they figure it out? And I found that as a whole, there's a lot more resentment in youngest children than like older children who have younger siblings, where when they find out, suddenly they're part of it. It's like, well, keep playing along for your younger siblings. And so they feel like they're part of the people who know now. They're part of this in-group that knows what's really going Definitely, on, and yeah. they're, they're helping play along for everyone else. And I found that fascinating, right? The, the difference in whether you feel like you are in the know or like you've been the one being tricked dictates how you end up feeling about that. I, I need to get more data on that. I'd, I'd love to get like a statistically significant sample size. What, yeah. What do you think? Orders. What do you think the percentage of parents is that would take a survey, let's say out of a sample pool of maybe 5,000 people, I would say you're probably like 86%, maybe. I don't know, something like that, right? But then then I don't know. See, religion's tough because it's like some people celebrate it, some don't. You know what I mean? How were you raised? What kind of family life? Like, I guess there's a lot of contributors. Oh, the the cultural stuff around Santa is nuts. And again, like, this is something that I often leave out of presentations because it's like, hey, want to get heckled for ages after? One story (laughs) I do tell uh, because it's not Santa and there's less strong feelings about it that I think highlights the uh, the fact that even though you're young, that doesn't mean you're stupid and trust still matters. So my, my sister was about six, right? And she lost her first tooth. So, you know, they, they did the whole, hey, put the tooth under your pillow and the tooth fairy will come give you money. So she put her tooth under the pillow. She woke up the next morning. Oh, look, a pile of quarters instead of a tooth. And normally you'd think super exciting, right? 
but she was not excited. She was like super somber the whole morning, really quiet. So as my dad was driving her to school, he asked her what was wrong, and she looked at him and said, Daddy, did a fairy really sneak into my room last night and take my tooth and give me those quarters? Like, that's a point-blank question, right? That's wow. that's not, oh, yeah. we're playing a fun game. That's How like, old is she at this time? Six. Okay. She, she's a perceptive one yeah. and always has been. <laughs> yeah. But, like, something just felt off to her. And, I mean, my dad's the kind of guy that's like, okay, it's one thing to be like, oh, we're playing this fun game, and another one to, to straight-up lie to a point-blank, unsure question, right? Like, this was clearly a doubting, like, crisis moment for her, and he's like, I'm, I'm not going to lie to her. So he said... No, like this is just a fun game we play, right? We came into your room, me and your mom, and we gave you the money. It, it's just uh, like a tradition, right? It's just a fun, silly tradition. And she got quiet, and she sat on that for, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. Again, just a six-year-old being dead quiet in the car, like alone is almost unsettling. And after a little bit of pause, she looked, at up, looked up at him, you know, big little six-year-old eyes, said, Daddy... Why do adults think it's so funny to lie and trick little kids like that? And it's like, oh dear gosh. goodness, like that is <laughs> they don't prepare you for that as a parent. Like, what <laughs> what on earth can prepare you for that? Like, yeah, come on. Why do adults like to lie and trick little kids like that? Mm. And and like in the grand scheme of things, does that matter? Probably not, right? My sister is now like 30 and doing fine and she loves my parents and like, yeah it's not like she harbors this secret lack of trust that she's they've been lying to her about everything but those kinds of things build up right you mentioned religion and whether you're religious or not this will probably feel familiar because people have at least been exposed to religion most of the time if you're a religious parent and you're teaching your kid about santa and the tooth fairy and the easter bunny and about jesus and then they find out that you were lying about Santa and the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny. All these things that do cool, magical things that you can't see, but you see evidence that they're interacting. Why are you not going to think that Jesus is fake too? And then all of a sudden the parent's like, yeah, yeah, I lied about all this other stuff you can't see. And and I lied about it for years. But Jesus, that one's totally real. Right. Like, like as the kid, like how are you not going to have a crisis of faith as a teenager or whatever, <laughs> where it's like every single thing that... I haven't been able to see that had like this miraculous outcome that my parents have told me about my whole life. They've admitted they were lying, but this one is suddenly super important, right? Like that's like, yeah, like I've, I've always struggled with how do I set that precedent? If I'm wanting my children to believe me, not just about religion, but about anything, right? Like, yeah, don't do drugs. Uh, don't get pregnant in high school. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like whatever life wisdom I have for them. If I've set the precedent all growing up, they're like, I will lie to you for my own convenience. <laughs> like when it comes down to crunch time, when they are in middle and high school and they're trying to figure out who they are and, and who they trust, like no wonder kids are so much more likely to turn to their peers for advice than for their parents. Because like, I mean, at least their peers tell them the truth, even if the truth is idiotic and, and often wrong. Like, at least they're, they feel like they're being honest with them. And so I think it's really important that you set that precedent. And uh, I, I know that this 
the book that we're supposedly talking about is about leadership, but like leadership and parenting are the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Leadership and, and a lot of things are the same thing, but, but parenting for sure, anything you read in almost any leadership book can secretly just be about parenting and honesty is a huge one. And, and I talk about perspective in the book as well and the importance of perspective. The, the things that feel like they aren't that big of a deal to a parent are the biggest deal to the kid. And if you don't give them the time and the attention that they need when it's a big deal to them, then they aren't going to talk about the things that are a big deal later. So maybe when they're eight, the big deal is that their dinosaur toy is just all wrong. And you're sitting there being like, this isn't a big deal. But like from their perspective, this is the biggest deal they have ever dealt with, right? Like this is an emotional crisis. And from our perspective as the parents, like, there's way more to life, but like they haven't experienced that life. The amount of times I've seen a kid in like middle or high school get blown off by an adult or a parent about their first crush because it's like, eh, you have crushes. They come and they go and like, you'll get over it. And it's like, yeah, they will. And as a 35 year old person who's been married for the last 10 years, it's really easy to say, yeah, the middle school crush didn't matter and it doesn't compare to 10 years of marriage. But in the moment, when you are experiencing your first crush, like that is the single most impactful romantic event ever. It is the only frame of reference you have. And so for you in that moment, it is the most devastating thing that has ever happened to you. Do you remember your first? It depends on what you count as a crush. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking, yes, it is impactful. It's huge. It's a, it's a gigantic event. That's, I, rem I remember my first date. I remember the first girl I ever was like, my heart fawns for you. It yeah. is on fire. I can't believe it. I've never felt this way before. The world would end if we aren't together forever. I even remember the first girl that I thought was just kind of pretty in like fourth grade. Like we aren't even hitting puberty yet. Like the hormones aren't even raging. It's just the moment where you start being like, that girl is pretty. Yeah. Like there's not even any intent for action or anything. And I still remember that. Yes. And I don't know. I, I don't want to go like off on this giant rant, but it it baffles me how much we get wrapped up in our perspective that just because I have experienced a hard thing doesn't mean that your less hard thing isn't just as hard for you. It's like, okay, so, you know, someone survived cancer and chemo and all of the treatments and all of the insane stuff. And and they're like, wow, I've been through medical hell. I've been through every surgery. I've been on every drug. When someone they know ha has a minor surgery, right? You know, I don't know if this counts as minor, but say they, they tear their ACL or something. And then they're like, wow, that sucked. And, and the drugs from the surgery really knocked me out. And like, my leg hurts so bad. And like, this is awful. Sure. As the cancer survivor, you have been through way worse. And it'd be really easy to be like, oh, you don't know anything. Like, this is not that bad. Sure. But if that if that person that just had the ACL surgery has never had surgery before, this might be the most pain they've ever been in in their life. So like for their perspective, they are experiencing literally a 100% capacity of agony they can imagine. Right? Like they have capped out for how much misery they can they have any frame of reference for. And just because you have a larger frame of reference doesn't make their experience invalid. Right. Like maybe maybe that experience will expand later, but we have to be able to remember 
that we only have our own perspective and that's bounded by our experiences and they can't benefit from your experiences and it doesn't help to be like, well, toughen up. It gets worse or something, you know, like like it could be worse. Common response. Yeah. I mean, really. There are starving kids in Africa that would love to have your challenges and it's like, that doesn't help me, right? Like my challenges feel as overwhelming as anything I have ever experienced and someone else suffering worse doesn't help me fix it. You know, like, yeah, it's, know. All, it's all individualized. Yeah. Yeah. I, if, if you read the book, you will notice this. And maybe you noticed this, Devin, that the entire <laughs> chapter on perspective gets a little passionate. And I'm, I'm grateful that my editor was willing to let that passion bleed through some because some of those parts were written just in a fury. I mean, not an angry fury, but just in this like, oh, my goodness, like everyone, please, please just understand that we're all people. We're all people just trying our best and and just a little bit of perspective and a little bit of compassion and a little bit of empathy can go so far, just so far. And it doesn't matter whether it is empathy for your boss or your coworker or your teenager or your two-year-old. We're all just little disasters trying our best <laughs> with, so with what we've got. Yes, and I did notice that, um, and especially now that you talk about it after reading it. One thing I can take away from that too, which is, well, there's a lot that I can take away from that. Very well spoken. These moments are big moments individualized in your life, your developmental period, going back to these little white lies that we tell our kids that absolutely do nothing for us, but everything affects everything for them. I mean, being honest the best that you can possibly be is maybe the most important form or one step to becoming a great leader. I believe so. I mean, it, it's a big enough one that it made my list of eight. What's well, uh, yeah, ex- exactly. And and to me, that one resonates the most because maybe it's the maybe it's the one that personally I've struggled with the most because I have such a compassionate heart for humanity and all kinds of different people that I never want to disappoint anybody. I am so glad you phrased it exactly like that because again, you, you asked if lying is bad, right? Like, and that's why I said lying doesn't make you a bad person. Most of the time it's because you aren't thinking long-term and, and many people lie again because of compassion because they care and they don't want people to be sad and they don't want them to be uncomfortable and they don't want to disappoint them. But like you always have to realize that inevitably in almost everything, again, there are crazy fringe exceptions, the truth will come out, right? So all you're doing is delaying. All you're doing is saying, okay, I don't want to deal with being uncomfortable right now. Like, I don't want to have to deal with telling you that Santa doesn't exist right now because it's going to be awkward and, and you're going to be sad and I'm going to have to explain it. So instead, we're going to wait a few years and then I'm going to have to explain not only that Santa doesn't exist, I'm also going to have to explain why I lied to you for the last four years. And TV shows, movies, they drive me nuts because like 90% of all conflicts, in, like relationship conflicts not like oh aliens coming down and and shooting stuff but like relationship interpersonal character conflicts could be stopped if literally just people stopped lying <laughs> like rom-coms Period. rom-coms yeah. dry yeah. like i can't watch them anymore because it's just like 
hey, that's what we, sells. We get like lies, <laughs> deception. You get ten minutes into the movie, <laughs> and the conflict shows up, and it's like the main character could just say, "Oh, sorry, that that was a misunderstanding. I I didn't I didn't mean to make you feel that way. I I'm sorry. Here, let me make it right." And it's like, and the movie's over. Yeah, and there instead it has to be like. Oh, let me make up some BS lie that sends us on a wild goose chase and we have to spend the next ages untangling it. And then I'm trying to figure out how to say this without getting getting too rambly, but it really is, it just compounds, right? So, so you have a lot of experience in sales, right? Yep. And so you've done a lot of sales and you know that if you are having a long-term sales relationship with a customer, you can lie to them to make a sale. 100%. Right. It becomes a lot harder to lie to them to get a second sale. Exactly. Yes, compounding. And when you mention that, that's so true because what you're looking for in sales, long-term commitment to you. And the only reason that they give you long-term commitment is because they trust you, which brings us back to our main point of trust, which your kids will not trust you more I mean, your kids are not going to try. If you lie to them about Santa, as an example, later on in life, turns out you could have just been straightforward with them because it's the same thing with a customer, right? And we're looking at different stages, but it's the same exact thing. In order to build long-term relationships and continue to sell somebody, they have to trust you. So lying to a customer is, is one of the worst things that you can possibly do. Because when you tell them the truth... They are going to admire you more than any other salesman they've ever dealt with. Oh, for sure. I have. I I did this especially in the early days with my my digital marketing agency. We were doing SEO, search engine optimization, which is like the snake oiliest salesman industry ever, and it relies a lot on reporting. And the reporting is super easy to manipulate. You can send an SEO report telling your client you're doing a great job pretty easily even if you aren't. And we had some clients that didn't even really care. Like you didn't even have to send them a monthly report. They were just kind of like, yeah, someone's handling it. And every once in a while, I had one where, you know, something did go wrong. There was a, an algorithm update or something went bad. We, we made a bad call. And that month's report, the numbers didn't look great. And so I'd send them a report saying, hey, we made a mistake. And this was the impact. And here's what we're going to do to fix it. And... And here's what we're doing going forward. And I'd get the response like, oh, we had no idea anything was even wrong. Every, everything seemed fine to us. Thank you so much for letting us know yes. and, and being upfront about it. I, I don't even own the agency anymore. Those clients are still there. Mm -hmm. It has been five years. And I mean, every time I've had a kid, they've sent us a present. Yep. You know, it's like because I told them the truth even when I didn't have to. Right. Nobody was going to call me on it. No, they didn't care. They didn't know. But I went out of the way to show a level of accountability and, and let them know that I was going to be honest with them. I mean, it built insane amounts of long-term trust. And I can't think of any common lying circumstance where, sure, you're going to be uncomfortable for a little bit. And you might have to have a hard conversation that you aren't going to like. And maybe, It's confrontational. Yeah, maybe the other person's mm -hmm. going to be mad at you for a while. Sure, like that'll happen. Could you potentially lose the client by, by telling them the truth? Yeah. The answer is yes. For sure. So that fear, and a guy taught me early on in, in sales training that fear is false evidence that appears real. And it really is that because 
you don't know what the consequence is going to be. Um, and so the, the easy lying is easy, right? So the easiest way to react, you're reacting to someone is to be like, if I tell them this in the short term, I can make this sale or whatever the current thing is that we're working on as a customer. But like we're talking about further on down the line, they're not going to be your client later because eventually, like you said, the truth will come out. And a perfect example, it's super easy with this one because my first sales career, well, no, it wasn't my first, but anyway, the car business, one that I spent the most time in um, is a vehicle, right? Which is the most like depreciating asset that you can own. Okay. Not only that, there's always going to be problems. Okay. Your engine, some not foreseeable, some that you don't know about, but what if someone the day before they're like, Hey, in a sales meeting, we really need to sell this car, right? But there's a thing, it's in the shop right now, and this is happening, and that's happening. Major things. Like, it's getting uh, this and this. Okay, great. So you know that. Next day, you see it on the lot, and you're like, wait a minute. Um, wasn't this getting, like, some really hardcore things? So now you know it's been passed through the shop, right? Now, that means that I can go out there, and they didn't pay for the repairs to get done to this vehicle, and we can just sell this vehicle, right? So... A customer comes up, and maybe you haven't had a sale, and now it's a dog-eat-dog world, okay? If you don't sell anything, you don't make any money. So this vehicle has something that's going to happen in the shop. Don't Now, I know it's a repair that is a major repair, but somehow it's out there for sale. Well, the sales manager says there's a spiff, which, is, which means you make an extra whatever to get this car sold quick. If you haven't sold anything, you haven't made any money, I kind of explained that. You're maybe in a spot where like the next sale's kind of big because you've got bills coming up. It's like a hero to zero business. You could have a very great month. You could have a very, when you work on commission, anybody who's ever done that will know that. Well, and I'm telling the story from personal experience, okay? So um, a mom and her daughter are out on the lot looking for cars. Now, this car is relatively cheap. It's a Honda Civic. It's got, um, you know, 110,000 miles. And I know that it needs a new fuel pump and some sort of uh, injector or something like that. And eventually this is going to get fixed, right? It's going to stay out there for a few days, but they're just like, heck with it. We'll sell it. Don't mention this. Okay. (laughs) Straight up. Like there's no, there's no like small stuff in the car business. You're there to move iron. It is what it is. Not sketchy at all. So this is like my first year of selling cars. I start talking to them and I'm like, (laughs) okay, let's look at a vehicle. You know, hello. I do my whole greeting, go into it. And I find out that, you know, she's about to go to college. Um, she needs a nice, reliable vehicle that gets great gas mileage, blah, 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 blah. We start looking at all the used cars and lo and behold, what car does she want to drive? The Honda Civic. And tell us a little bit about this vehicle. So I'm like, well, you know, Honda, they're great. They're a great brand like Toyota and other ones. And, uh, you know, it would do exactly what you want and get you to Laramie and back. Um, it's great. They go high mileage. Everything that the car is, is actually a decent car for these reasons. In my head, I know, no, there's a major thing going on that we haven't actually fixed yet, but, and at what point in my training have they said anything about this? Right? Like I'm still kind of new to the business. Yeah. So we drive it and uh, we get to the back to the lot and I'm like, yeah, go ahead and, you know, park that. How do we feel about the vehicle? And she's like, I love it. This is the one in my head. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> okay, great. At that point, you're, you're told, well, let's go inside and get this paperwork started and get you out of here in your brand new vehicle. You've made the right choice, blah, 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 blah. Instead, you're like, now I have to grapple with morality. <laughs> so exactly. I know I got a sale coming. 
I know there's a spiff on this card to make me extra money, which is the money that I need to actually pay my bills. And everything about me says, just walk them in and sell them the car. And at some point, bring this up. Or maybe like I can talk to my sales manager and I can be like, look, if you really like this car, we do have, to, we do have parts ordered and something that we want to fix on it before you get it. And we start walking towards the building. And I'm like, I'm just going to tell her straight up what's going on. I'm like, one thing about this car, and I know you love it, okay, um, but there was it was in the shop right before it came out, and I don't think that we've finished what we need to finish on the vehicle. And they're like, oh, okay, well, what's going on with it? And in my head, I didn't really know. So I'm like, I don't know, but I'll find out. Like, let's go, let's go in and let's let's get everything started. You buy a car, it's, it's a lot of paperwork and everything like that. So we do the credit thing, we do all that, and I go back to my sales manager, unmentioned sales manager at this moment, um, worst manager I've ever had in my entire life. And I go up to him and I'm like, they love the car. He's like, great, let's do it. He's like, ah, that's the spiff, you know, that's the one you need. Uh, that's the seller. Good job. Let's get it all signed up. Okay, great. Um, what's going on with it though? He's like, well, you didn't tell him about you know, the shop work that needs to be done. I'm like, well, I did. And he's like, oh, God. Okay, well, it's not even that big of a deal. Just if they bring it up, then go into it. I'm like, well, you still haven't told me what it is. He's like, you're here to sell a car today. So go out there. Here's the numbers. And let's get him to sign it and get on out of here. So this is the type of stuff that you go through that I would consider the most hardcore point of sales, right? So I go to the desk, and I'm like, now I have to play against my manager and the customer and make a moral right decision on what to do here. And so I'm just going to take this into my own hands. Like, I honestly, I was so pissed that he didn't give me enough information. Like, it, like my greatest fear had just came true, basically. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, you know what? Before I go back and present these numbers, I'm just going to just go to the shop and ask him what was up with it. So I go to the shop, and I'm like, hey, what was up with that Honda Civic? I'm about to sell it. And he's like, oh, it needs a fuel pump. It needs this. So it needs about $1,200 worth of work. Which... The customer would have to pay for it. Basically, if I sold it to them, they are driving this off knowing that that's going to fail. Yeah, it's going to be bad. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a bad outcome. So I'm like, oh, okay, great. I go back and I sit down and I present the numbers. And I'm like, hey, just to let you know, we do have some shop work. It's about $1,200 worth of work. Now, we can we can get that handled and we can move it through the shop, you know what I mean, as quick as possible. And... Um, she literally looks at me and she goes, well, I've, I've saved up $5,000 to put down on this vehicle today. So I can take 1200 of that and gladly pay that because this is the vehicle that I want. And I was like, great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody awesome. wins. So at that moment, I go back and I talk to my manager and I'm like, hey, um, she's going to go ahead and, and pay for the repairs in the shop. I went back to the shop and I asked them what the, he's like, you did what? He's like, that's not how we do things. This isn't how the car business works you got a lot to learn as a salesperson and i'm like well she said she'd pay for it he's like yeah but he's like we didn't we weren't gonna fix that he's like it's good as is it but then eventually because i'm making a sale because it's all happening um we scheduled it to be in the shop so they would actually come pick it up a week later and then i sold that lady um a vehicle i sold her husband a vehicle i sold their uncle a vehicle in a four-year time span and i know i've rambled on this for a minute but the main that was one of the main points like if, in fact, I just let that go, they drive off in that vehicle, the fuel pump goes out, whatever, then I get the call, and they're like, did you know about this beforehand? And this really nice mom and daughter, like, did you know about this? Then what would it be like? And, and that is exactly where a lot of people end up with lies, because you say you do like, okay, quick little white lie, right? 
and then down the road, here comes the confrontation. It's coming back. My my actions are coming back to haunt me. And now you've got the question again. Now do I lie again? Right? Because I can say, yes, I knew about it and and accept the consequences of my decisions. Or I can say, oh no, I didn't know about easily, it. I easily could have said no. And maybe they never find out and and they hate your company. And they like forever. me anyway. They hate yeah. the company, but they don't they like me as a salesperson. But I'm but then I'm presenting myself and falsely. And if they still like you as a salesperson, like what if they keep coming back to you? Right? Like, it's even how, more stressful for me. How like, many times yeah. are you going to have to face that discomfort in the eye over and over and over? Exactly. And every single time with every single lie, it gets more uncomfortable. It gets worse. And if the day comes, I mean, you slip up once, you make one mistake and let it slip that you knew somehow or, or even imply like, Oh yeah, you know I don't even know how you would accidentally let that slip out. The original owners of the car, like, oh, did yeah. they get that fuel pump picks? Well, we're friends. We actually traded that in because yeah, that like, happens. It's like, you oh, know? yeah, yeah. We, we told Devin about it when we traded it yeah. in. Like, yeah, they knew. They they find out, and now not only are you saying, oh hey yeah, I knew about it. Now it's like, I knew about it then, and then I knew about it when you called me and I lied, and then I knew about it six months ago when I lied, and then I knew about it when I sold your uncle the car and I lied, and actually. Every interaction we've had over the last four years has kind of just been based on a giant lie. And now, even if everything after that was actually sincere and true, the whole relationship is called into question. Because it's like, okay, what else are they lying about? Exactly. The trust and, is gone. And if you don't lie, then you don't have to play that game of keeping track of what have I lied about. You don't have to... Say like, hey, am I am I keeping up with this lie? Am I keeping up with this lie? Uh, who who's managing what? Like, there's no stress. Yeah, you you've already. That's the great thing about it. Being honest is way better for you in the long run because you are not going to be stressing yourself out, digging yourself in a hole, trying to more lies build up. Um, it's going to take a lot of stress off you <laughs> just by simply saying, hey, here's what it is. So. And I know that we've gone on this topic for a little bit, and we're going to get into some more here. But before we do, um, how about a word from our sponsor? This episode is sponsored by Ugly Chews. Ugly Chews are super durable, all-natural, zero-waste dog chews. They're not much to look at, but your dog will absolutely love them. I can vouch for that because my dog is currently going nuts with her chew right now. One chew keeps her busy for hours, and she'll play with it as much as she chews on it. Plus, they're completely additive-free, chemical-free, environmentally friendly. For more information, order online at UglyChews.com, where you can use the coupon code HONEYCOMB for 10% off your first order. You can also follow Ugly Chews on Instagram and Facebook. Getting out of that and into something else, I just want to I want to go into one thing that you did mention. So you're the youngest. So do you have any brothers or sisters? I mean, what's it look like for your family? Yeah, I, I mentioned my older sister with mm -hmm. the tooth fairy story. Oh yeah, right, right, right. So she's a year and a half older than me, and then I have a brother who's about four years older than me. Oh, okay. So three of you. Yep. Okay, great. Cool thing here, and just because you're like, which which are you? Have you ever read the birth order book? I haven't read the book. I have read some of the concepts. I, I'm familiar with some of the ideas, but I haven't read the book. So it's a great book, and it was recommended to me actually by an employer. We had like this little book club, and it was really the only one that I ever read. But uh, Kevin Lehman uh, wrote the book. So this book made a lot of sense to me. So I have an older brother. 
Um, I am second born, and then I have a younger brother, and then I have twin sisters that are uh, the babies. My older brother is 100% firstborn. And now raising kids after reading this and having these realizations, I'm like, Graham, my firstborn. Oh, yeah, he's a firstborn. I can see it. Um, You know, he graduated magna cum laude from Kansas State University, was this amazing wrestler, football player, should have skipped the fifth grade, you know, won all the awards, married the minister's daughter, went off into the sun. Like everything you could possibly think. Like going behind him in school was really rough for me because they're like, oh, you're Curtis's younger brother. Oh, it was tough because I was not that. I was a complete ham, the performer. I had a lot more lady friends than my brother did because he didn't, you know, anyway, it's a great book. You should check it out. I highly recommend that book for people to look into it. But speaking of books, I want to talk about another chapter in yours that I really enjoyed and just kind of have your perspective on it. Did you have a specific order when you're making these chapters? Because it all feels really good and it all flows together. We we went into honesty. Obviously, that's a chapter in its own. But let's talk about chapter three. Let's talk about humility. So I love humility. Not surprising since again, like, wrote a book on part of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it made my my list of four attitudes for successful leadership. So clearly it's one of my favorites. But humility is interesting because we get it wrong a lot. We get it wrong a lot and we have very, very weird cultural associations with humility. There's a whole section in the book about humility not being weakness, right? Because your manager, your sales manager, kind of your worst manager ever feels like one of those people that doesn't have humility figured out. That it, it, We live in a culture that very much pumps up the the self-promotion and the I'm so cool and and trying to act like you've got it all together. And humility isn't about being weak or being inferior. It's just about, to some degree, it's just about being honest, but being honest about, about who you are and and when you mention the order of the chapters and how they go together, they are very much designed to flow together. They should each work on their own. You should be able to go back to each principle and say, you know, I want to work on this one. I feel like I can go back now and just kind of refresh myself and like read through. So, yeah, I'm glad yeah. it was set up that way. Going, going back to what we said at the beginning, like if you try to do everything, you won't do anything. So it's meant to be here's an overview. Now go back and pick one and work on it until you feel like you've hit where you want to be for now with it and then pick another one and and work on it. Uh, hopefully having a little bit of a workbook feel to it where you can can go back and visit different parts. But humility ties in a lot with honesty. A lot of the principles tie in with each other in that way. Humility is, is a, a lot of things and it entails a lot of things, but it isn't weakness and it isn't just a lack of arrogance. It isn't just not being better than other people. Because a lot of people, when they think about humility, we think about words like humiliation, right? Like the the root word. Easy there. to associate. Yeah. I mean, it, it has the same root. You think like embarrassment, being put down, being lower. These things where it's like, oh, self-deprecation, right? Self-deprecation is huge in like internet culture. People are absolutely brutal to themselves, putting themselves down, saying how they're the worst, all these things. Like it's a huge form of humor on the internet, like self-deprecating humor, and in stand-up and in a lot of places, making fun of yourself, making yourself seem lesser, making yourself seem inferior. And humility and pride are opposites, right? So so pride is, is the other end of the spectrum. And what a lot of people don't get 
is that thinking that you are worse than everyone and, and always putting yourself down is actually still a form of pride, right? To think that you are worse is not to be humble. Humility comes from uh, one of the other principles in the book. It, it ties in with authenticity, which is having an accurate view of who you are, right? You can be humble about your strengths and not say like, wow, I'm the best public speaker in the world. Like I'm not the best public speaker in the world, but I would also be both lying and wrong to say I'm a garbage public speaker because I'm good at public speaking, right? So I, I feel like I have an accurate assessment of the fact that I am a skilled public speaker. I do my job well, but that doesn't mean I need to go out and be like, yeah, I'm the coolest thing since sliced butter, bread, cheese. Uh, I don't even know what yeah, I'm saying anymore. All those things. I don't know why butter came out and not bread. <laughs> that's that's your ego talking. <laughs> that's, it's, a, it's a classic tell. <laughs> that's a great chapter. And I think that what I take from it too is, yeah, that's a great point. So the, the pride and um, the judgment of yourself, right? Because we're all so hard on ourselves. I just recently had this conversation with a friend of mine and he was like, do you ever just brutally beat yourself up over things. And I was like, yeah, I mean, in a way I can definitely say that. These are these are the things that we talk about, right? We but, all have those moments. Yeah. Like, the, like, do I just suck? Yeah. Like, uh, why did you do that? You know, you're, you're conscious, basically speaking back to you, um, your inner self, the inner monologue that you, that you have that kind of constantly tracks. The thing is, is I'm like, yeah, we're all, we all are hard on ourselves in a way. I mean, I can definitely feel that. I think everyone goes through that. And then I've talked to a couple other people because it's a good friend of mine. So in my circle of friends, I can be like, hey, so-and-so mentioned this, like, how do you feel about that? And the general consensus is yes, like we're all pretty hard on ourselves. But when it comes to habits, when it comes to things that we talk about, like you've talked about in the book about creating habits, those type of things, I think that that's, that's a part of it, but it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily the one thing that can deter you from, from being successful at beating yourself up in a way is kind of your self-motivation, right? Which for me, self-motivation is one of the main traits and things that I try to focus on to, to always be self-aware and to be motivated to say, you can do this, you can get through it. So positive affirmations and the negative things that you say to yourself all work the same, right? Pride, ego, humility, such different things. And I agree with you that those negative perceptions of ourselves, recognizing our flaws can be really beneficial for helping us grow, for motivating us to become better when they are kept within the proper bounds, right? If you look back, like taking that car example, if you had lied there and you look back and you said like, wow, I feel terrible about how I did that. And I'm being a real jerk. I don't want to be that. And that motivates you to change. That's good. But when people beat themselves up over things that aren't accurate or that are way out of proportion, then it becomes a problem because they feel incapable of fixing them, right? And that's when the, you get really, really negative, like, psychological impacts. I mean, mm -hmm. you, that's where you have, like, the stereotypical teenage girl who's like, oh, my goodness, I'm just so fat. And it's like, the thing is, you weigh, like, 90 pounds. And that's, like, and then eating disorders come around. Where right. It's like, well, okay, so if you are on the verge of death for, you know, diabetes or, or cholesterol or something. And your doctor says like, hey, you're 580 pounds. And if you don't lose weight, you will die. 
Like that's very different from being like, you know what? I, I need to lose weight for my own health versus the same thought is like, I need to lose weight. One of these situations you have a legitimate need to lose weight for your health. One of these, this is essentially a delusion and you don't need to lose weight and losing weight would actually be unhealthy. That's an example that I just made up, but you could take that to any number of things where if you, if you say that like, I'm just way too lazy, it's like, I'm, I'm just lazy. And you're always beating yourself up over how lazy you are, but you aren't like you, you work very hard and you allow yourself some amount of recreation. What all you're going to do is drive yourself to be burned out right? mm-hmm. because you're trying to fix something that isn't an issue. So I, I do think recognizing our flaws so that we can work on them is important, but they also have to stay within the scope of feeling like there's something that can actually be done about it or something that truly needs fixed. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of things we can do to try to have that accurate self image. And the whole authenticity section is kind of all about that, but that's important to, to keep in mind when you're saying like, yeah, some amount of self, like self negative self-talk can actually be useful. It's like, yeah, it can but as long as it is driving positive change. And it's moderation, yeah. I feel, too, definitely, because that's kind of like the conversation that we got into, too. I mean, we'll get off that subject. But, I mean, I was basically like, yes, everything in moderation, which is something I think about all the time. Any Too much of anything is never a good thing, or it, it, it depends on the amount. If you're truly beating yourself up like to the point where you feel that it's affecting you psychologically and it's not for the betterment of your self-worth or for you to actually go forward and do something, then I think that that is detrimental to you. And and I think that you're probably being too harsh on yourself. I don't think that, I think you're focusing too much on whatever you're being negative about. And it's a problem that you should, you should work on. Everything takes work. Everything, you have to manifest a solution to the problem in order for you to fix it. So kind of like that. Yeah, moderation is the big, I think, the big word there when you're when you're thinking of these things. Because if you, if you let that get too out of hand, you end up in a really dark place where you end up thinking, I'm just such a terrible person. Why even try to get better? And right. at that point, like you've, you've stopped all progression because you've, you've put yourself in a spot like I just am awful. So why try to be anything but awful? Because mm. like I'm such a garbage person. And, yes. and that's you've gone way too far there. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you hit that spot. Speaking of leadership, so part of the problem, part of the solution, right? I've had really good leaders, mm-hmm. and I'm going to say them as managers or maybe a superior in jobs. A lot of people have that. Everyone's got that manager, right? And everyone's got a story. I thought about this just after reading your book, and then one way I could relay maybe a message to you that you might be able to to go on about, but. Uh, I've had good managers. I've had bad managers. It's like that classic cartoon where it shows a leader that's helping all these people move this gigantic rock up a hill compared to the person that's sitting on top of the rock and pointing. It's that basic concept. But when I think about what makes a good leader is communication. And when I say that as communication, I feel like oftentimes to get a point across or to have somebody do something for you or to show them a model of how they can succeed in a job, if you if it's communicated wrong and there isn't communication because everybody's different, right? Everyone has their their totally different psyches. It's just it's a different thing for each person individualized. And if you're not connecting or communicating, I feel like oftentimes that's the worst part or what makes a leader bad is the poor communication. 
Did they mean to tell you in a negative derogatory way that you're not doing your job well? Here's the things about you that you need to change. Because when it really comes down to it, a manager oftentimes will say, you know, how's your outside life? How's how's it going? When you come to work, are you leaving your life at the curb and then when you get here because your attitude isn't right you're not showing up on time these these common things that a manager would say or a leader would say i feel like the communication falls off whereas you could have communicated that by being like hey i'm here to help so if there's anything that's going on that you feel like you need to talk to me about that i can help you with i want i want you to succeed in your job and i want to help and be a be a part of that rather than just pointing it out and saying you need to change this communication i think super key as well I agree. And it actually has to be both sides, right? You you bring up the example of, you know, what if the leader says something, the manager, the whoever, and it just comes across the wrong way. It's not that they're doing anything bad. They just worded it poorly, which I totally get. I say things all the time that I'm like, ooh, hmm, maybe that wasn't the answer because in the wrong context, that could actually sound like I'm terrible. And In those instances, we end up coming back to honesty. Wouldn't it be great if in that instance, the person who is on the receiving end of that, wouldn't it be great if they were honest enough and felt comfortable enough to say, hey, that, I I, I don't know if that came off wrong or what, but like, I don't feel comfortable with what you just told me. Because then you as a leader can be like, okay, clearly there was a miscommunication. Let's fix this. And the only way to foster that kind of environment is to do it all you need to have a spot where your employees can feel comfortable coming to you and saying i don't feel great about this or or, i'm concerned about this thing like they need to trust you enough to be able to talk to you about things because you're gonna make mistakes you're going to have communication errors that's kind of the theme of the humility chapter is you will mess up hard stop like you will fall off the bowl i i mentioned in the book that the very best bull riders in the world still get thrown more than half the time. Like the best leaders in the world still mess up constantly. (laughs) And it's not that you make mistakes. It's how you handle those mistakes. So if you model a culture of, you know, I make mistakes and when I make mistakes, I own them and I try to fix them and it's okay. Then when you make mistakes, your employees are going to feel okay saying like, Hey, was that a mistake? And when they make mistakes, they're going to tell you about it. So that you can fix it because they aren't going to worry about being shamed or punished or or demeaned or fired for messing up. So like how you model that can be really, really important to, I don't know if it's perfectly relevant, but you mentioned it and I think it's interesting and, and somewhat important. A lot of times we talk about leaders and we talk about managers and we talk about all of these things that leaders can do to be good leaders. But is there anything you can do if you aren't in a leadership position? And it definitely isn't the best thing I've ever created. But I actually made a video on uh, my YouTube channel. It's it's a small little side project that I have. But I did a, an interview with Dr. Jaron Harvey, a, a professor of organizational behavior, talking about Michael Scott and the office. And how do you deal with managers that are just incompetent? Not evil, but like they just aren't doing good. They aren't good leaders. And how you as an employee could help them to become a better leader and maybe fill some of those leadership gaps yourself. And I think that you kind of hit on that a little bit there in your conversation as you talk about bad managers that you've had. And when you're in these positions as an employee, there are times where your title isn't going to say manager or or CEO or whatever. 
And in those spots, you shouldn't try to be the manager. Don't try and take over, but you can still be a leader. You can be an example in how you handle your mistakes, how you handle conflict, how you handle communication, and you can make an impact in those ways. And there are even some subtler ways that you can end up influencing your manager to be better at those things because most managers, most leaders, most bosses want to be good. They want to be competent. There are some just real jerks out there who don't care. But most people, if they're struggling and they feel like they aren't doing a great job as a boss and someone was able to say like, hey, I think this might help. Like they would take that. They want a lifeline. Yeah, because it comes to communication with your staff, right? If we're talking about manager to the employee, right? So yes, not taking over, obviously, but saying, hey, talking with the group kind of seems like morale's down. And the reason morale's down, I believe, is that the the system's kind of flawed in the way that we get ups. It feels like one person is getting more leads than another person. I'm just giving an example. It'd be great if we, maybe we could talk about that in a meeting. So yeah, everyone has that inferior moment too, where you're like, well, they can fire me. Or the reason that they're the manager is because they take on a lot more stress, or they do this, or they do that. I feel like the the people who have motivated me the mo- like the most and the the people that I see are leaders and it can be anybody like we're I am using manager as an example only because like that's the most common experience where you can say somebody's in this role and you're in this role and it's just kind of like how the the modern business job world. Yeah, there's a clear structure. Everyone can relate to that. But a leader can be your coworker too, right? Because they're leading by example. Or like they're taking responsibility for a mistake that they've made. Because humility, you're going to make mistakes. Let's face it, like nobody's perfect. Everyone's going to make a mistake. So your coworker can be like, you know what? I totally screwed this up. So since I'm going to explain this to you so you don't have the same problem. That's a great attribute as somebody trying to help being a leader, being forward about it being honest about it, having humility about it. In the world that we live in now, I feel like there is so much of not my responsibility, not taking um, responsibility for my actions, swept under the rug, not going to talk about it, put off until later on when that truth inevitably comes out and you reap the consequences, but you want the reward now of dealing with it and just stashing it away. There's so many things that can happen. And when I say now in the world, what I mean is like just firsthand how things have changed. I've only been on the earth for 37 years, so I don't have a lot of knowledge on times and what can change. What I notice now as a perception is that I need to take responsibility for my actions so it's all on me. It's a personal thing. But once I started doing that and I added that to my list of take the stairs or eat less or portion control or every day be do one nice thing or be nice to somebody when you're not feeling like you should or whatever, like like these these things that we think about is responsibility for your actions because it's the biggest thing ever. If someone comes up to you and they're like, hey, what happened to this car? There's a big scrape on it. I'm always using cars as references, but like you know, maybe you accidentally bumped a, someone's car at a restaurant and you put a big scratch in it. If you then say, this is my fault, I'm going to tell whoever owns this car, this is my fault. I'm going to go and find them. <laughs> you know, I'm not just going to walk away. It's not going to be a hit and run. And I'm going to be completely honest about this. So later on, let's say that there was a camera there, someone saw you. Okay, then I deal with the actions later. But I feel so much better just saying I messed up. 
it's it's okay. I think that grabbing onto that trait has helped me more than a lot of things. People say all these things, but they don't actually say what what did I do that contributed to that, or how do I learn from that, or that's my fault. That's my fault. I was about to say, never underestimate the power of those magic three words. That's my bad. Yes. Right. Like it's yeah. a, a super casual way to be like, you know, I screwed that one up, and. I'm not I'm not going to beat myself up over it forever but I'm going to make it right and we're going to move on and and it's fine right like I'll fix it I'll take care of it I it makes such a big difference to be able to just say like you know that one's on me sorry like messed up and and what can what can I do to make it right how can I fix it Yeah how can I fix it what can I do to make it right? I think that that one if you take anything there's a lot that you can take from this podcast but and and Dallin's book these are all great things and just tools. They're tools for you to grab and and hopefully they help influence you and hopefully you see things through a different eye or you examine yourself or um, you become a leader yourself, which in the end, leading by an example as a parent, you are a leader. As you said earlier, that's, that's a major point, but you're a leader in everything you do. I mean, it's not just your hierarchy or the role that you're in or anything like that. We can take these common concepts and and apply them to a lot of different things. And I think after reading your book, that's what I took from it. I mean, obviously, people can – I highly recommend that you do read this book, even if you're not a reader. And I think that that's what's so great about it, right? Because um, this will be available on Kindle, you know, the digital version. Any way that you take in information, I think that you really need to check this book out. And I hope that you that you get something from it. Because after me and Don have talked several times before we've had this podcast, one thing I can I can think to, to relay to you, the, the listeners, is that – you can digest all the information in the world and you can take it all in. But if you don't actually take something and use it and apply it, then what's, what's it doing for you? It's like, what have I done for you lately? Well, I went to the seminar and now I take the stairs, right? Little things, little steps. So down, I just, I, I appreciate it. And I'm, I'm really happy that you came on and uh, been great, man. And I, I, I wish you the best of luck with your book. Just in closing, I kind of wanted to get some remarks from you. Um, obviously, Oh, we hit all the main points, and uh, you'll just kind of have to take this book. And like I said, if you even if you don't read books, I highly recommend grabbing this one and, and checking it out. And hopefully, you can apply some of these some of these great things to your life and uh, live a better life. Because after all, I mean, we're still here, and life's super short. And that's what you should do with yourself. It is a fairly short book if you're not a reader. Tried to keep it to the point. Tried to not get too crazy with it. It's super easy. I read all this on my computer, so that's kind of how I like to to digest books a lot of times because I'm always on my computer anyway. So in closing, um, when you talk about your upbringing, did, did you, have you always lived in Wyoming? So I grew up in Riverton, in Riverton, Wyoming, central Wyoming, and I was there through high school. I then bounced around a few places. I was in Arizona. I was in Laramie, Wyoming doing college. I was in China for a bit, uh, just seeing the world, learning some stuff, yeah. <laughs> learning yeah. some languages. <laughs> And then despite all of my promises that I would never go back to central Wyoming, lo and behold, I got married and I graduated and ended up right back in central Wyoming. I swore I'd never go back. And, and here I am. Well, Wyoming is a great place in general. I mean, I am super biased because obviously I've lived here for most of my life too, but it's a great place to raise kids too. It really is. And that factored a lot into our decision. I think about it and I'm like, well, if I was still without kids, you know, me and Audrey were super free. We'd probably, there may be a different place we'd be living or who knows. It's hard to predict the future, but uh, 
Uh, Wyoming's just such a beautiful place. And bull riding, the stories that you tell in this, I think is really great because I think everyone secretly wants to hop on a bull. And that's what I was going to ask you too, just in closing. Did you ever, did you ever hop on the bull and uh, give it a go? I have never ridden a real full-size bull. Uh, I've ridden many mechanical bulls. I mean, it's interesting because that just ended up not not being who I was, which sounds awful because I really talk up bull riders in this book about we're learning all of these attributes of successful leadership from behaviors they show, right? These things like like authenticity and grit and and honesty and humility. And I'm not saying that I'm not those things, but <laughs> we have different paths and it turns out I'm not an adrenaline junkie. And and that's just not how I really uh, get get my kicks. Like I am, I'm a little bit of a wimp. I, I, <laughs> like if we're being honest, if somebody said, "Hey, Dallin, get on the bull," I'm like, I just don't want to because I am scared and I don't want to get hurt. Yes. <laughs> if you if you read in the book, many of the stories yeah. end with someone being very injured. Like I don't know if it's even in the book. It's it's in the presentation version of this. I think the most lighthearted story I actually have is about somebody getting bullcrap kicked into their mouth, my dad getting bullcrap kicked into his mouth, which I don't think made it into the book, but I, I use it <laughs> in the keynote speech. And it's like, that's the positive outcome. You know, that's like, nobody even got injured in this story. They just got crap in their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, then there you go. That's the title of your next book, right? Bullcrap in the mouth. It's, uh, that that formed a larger foundation of the <laughs> the original draft of this book. There was a lot more BS in it. Uh, but we we decided, and this actually is like a, a fairly big point. Is we I wanted to focus more on the positive, right? So there there was a lot, especially in the honesty section of using that story. I was like, hey, you know, what's coming out of your mouth? Is it a bunch of BS? Like, because my dad can tell you from experience, it's not super fun. Not something you want in there. Very unpleasant. <laughs> Oh, nice! Yeah, uh, and and it's it's still in the in the keynote presentation. It's still oh, fun, <laughs> and and it gets laughs. But for the book, I I really wanted to focus as much as possible on positive examples, on leaders who were doing the right thing, who were doing the good thing, and people that we could say, you know, what? I want to be like that instead of just being like, hey, don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and don't do this, because I feel like it's so easy to come up with like negative examples and and don't be like this examples and and don't do this and don't be that guy and here's the bad manager and here's the the worst and i think it's so much more inspiring to look at people who are doing things right who are doing things really good that make you want to be like them that's something that i try to do in this book it's something that i really try to do in in all of my ethics stuff because like we said nobody likes ethics and the reason nobody likes ethics it's because it gets paired with things like compliance and it ends up being like, don't get sued, don't get fined, don't go to prison. Like, here are the laws, toe the line. And, and just like leadership, just like ethics, it's the same stuff. And if it comes down to being like, don't be this and don't be that and, and, and don't be like that guy, it ends up feeling like all these lists of rules of trying to not be something. But if you can focus on the positive examples, on, on the leaders who are ethical, who are amazing, who do make a difference, who do all the stuff right, instead of being like, oh, I, I can't be this and I can't be that and I need to watch these rules. Instead, you're saying, I want to be that. And it's motivating and it's inspiring. It, it makes you 
have a desire to transform. It's this transformative idea to become something greater. And I think that's really inherent to humanity, this desire to change, to become better. And it's so much easier when we have positive examples. And and that's a really long way of saying, that's why we cut out the story about my dad getting poop in his mouth. (laughs) 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 Is that we wanted to stick to the positive examples of, of what it's like to be honest instead of focusing on the crap coming out of your mouth. Go out and get this book. I, I think it'll do something for you. And we all need positive examples in the world today. Dallin, again, thank you so much for stopping onto the show. And the book is out. It's out on Amazon. Get on the bull, developing attitudes and behaviors for successful leadership. And uh, with that, in closing, thanks for coming in, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me.